Hey, welcome everybody to the next installment to Z98. <laughs> I don't know, bro. We don't have a great name for our podcast. You know, maybe something more spiritual like High and Lift It Up. <laughs> Help me out, fellas. Nothing. We have been quarantined way too long. Yes. We have been. And here we are. We're walking into Easter week, Passion Week, celebrating, um, heading up to the Easter Sunday. And just welcoming my friends here with me, the guys from our other campuses. We got all four of our guys together again this week. So introduce yourself, guys. Uh, this is Elliot Cherry at uh, 12 South. At Brant from East Nashville. Dave Burden from Creval. Welcome. Good to have all you guys here. With Easter coming up and us not all being together, which is kind of sad, but it kind of reminds us of Easter's from the past. You guys have any fun Easter memories? My favorite Easter memory is when Jesus rose from the grave. <laughs> well, that's why you're a pastor, is <laughs> I do remember the first year that we put, m- there was money in our Easter eggs. Like there, oh, we were yeah. doing like our family Easter egg hunt and we knew there was one egg out there that had $10 in it, yes. which totally changes the dynamic of the Easter egg hunt. Cause now we're all shaking the eggs, trying to figure out which one has dollar bills in it and it's pretty, pretty heady times. When there's cash involved, there's a lot at stake now. It's yeah. very serious. <laughs> it is kind of sad, though. I mean, I know to not be able to gather in person I, the last handful of years, at, at least at Creefall, and I think the other congregations have done it as well, just uh, the community Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Gathering with all the kids and all the families, I remember being spread out uh, in the park behind Granberry, just like 10,000 eggs mm-hmm. and releasing the kids to run and just yeah. the fun of all being together. Yeah will be sorely missed. Yeah, Tenebrae uh, and Sunrise Service have become two of my favorite things to do uh, with our church family, and so I'm very sad to not get to do that uh, this week. Well, this is what traditionally has been called Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week, and we're walking into Luke chapter 19. We're still on the book of Luke and studying Jesus' walk to the cross as he comes into Jerusalem So we're starting in verse 28 and reading through verse 44, and man, is this passage packed full of meaning. It's almost like everything in these, what, 15 verses are significant and profound. Mm. So Brent, are you reading for us? I am. So this is Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Mm, thanks, Brent. What are you guys seeing as we um, as we kind of dive into this passage of Scripture? And Jesus seems to be asking the disciples to go and fetch him a donkey. Well, Randy, I think you you said every single verse in this passage is kind of a depth charge and very pregnant with meaning. So for the people of Israel who were celebrating Passover at this time, which had you know a ton of significance for them and their identity as a people, uh, similarly, this going to fetch a colt and riding into Jerusalem on a colt would have been a very pregnant image for them, hearkening back to Zechariah's prophecy that the Messiah would ride in on a colt and how the people are responding. This is definitely Jesus claiming, I'm riding into Jerusalem as king and doing it in a manner that would be fulfilling prophecy as well as you know pointing back to Solomon's coronation and how he rode in when David made him king. So, I mean, because of what Jesus has been doing up, up until this point, he's got a ton of attention. Everything's kind of at fever pitch. It's Passover in Jerusalem, and here comes Jesus basically enacting, the, you know, riding in as king, and everybody is not confused about the significance of what he's doing. And Jesus is also doing this on purpose, right? And we see that in the way that he communicates about the donkey. This isn't stuff that happened and later the disciples repurposed to communicate something. Jesus tells them, I want you to go and find this colt. And they found it just like he said. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is very intentionally planning to fulfill a lot of these Old Testament prophecies or to kind of recapitulate a lot of these Old Testament events. Yeah, back in Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus then turned his face and determined to go to Jerusalem. Some translations say he turned his face like flint or he stiffened his face like, I'm going to Jerusalem and I know why I'm going. Even if other people are confused about that, it speaks to what you just said, Brant, and your question, Randy, of everything is on purpose. Like n- none of this is happening to him. He, he has set up himself to do this. And every piece of the story, the donkey, the palms being laid down, which, which uh, we, we hear about in the other gospel accounts as well, and the singing and, and the Hosanna and all of that stuff like, is pregnant with symbolism. They have Old Testament references, and like you alluded to, Dave, and Zechariah, and even Solomon's coronation in, in First Kings. Like, this is how kings ride in during their coronation, and a king on a colt, I'm, I'm riding in... And so the people are aware of some of the symbolism, even if they don't know what the symbolism all is going to mean. They know this guy is claiming to be something right here. So before we get into some of the thick of what you guys are talking about, I want to just bring us to this very human moment where the disciples are sitting there wondering, if we go get this donkey for you, are we stealing? How are we going to deal with people wondering what we're doing by just taking this donkey? Why is this in here? In this passage that's so thick with Old Testament references and the declaration of a new kingdom that's coming, and right here Jesus is trying to tell them how to respond to a bunch of dudes that own the donkey and wondering why they're taking it. 
I mean, I think it's to what I'm what I mentioned earlier. It's Jesus communicating really clearly that he knows all the things that are about to happen, down to people objecting that their cult is being taken. Mm-hmm. And he's illustrating that for the disciples very clearly and asking them even to participate in his essentially foreknowledge of what's about to take place. Mm-hmm. When and I'm imagining myself there, someone's coming to take my car, and I say, "Hey, what what are you doing?" And they go, "Well, the Lord needs it." And we go, "Okay, right." Well, Lord didn't tell me that, so it's the, the Obi Wan Kenobi moment where he just kind of waves his hand and says, <laughs> "The Lord needs it." But it's so real, isn't it? Because we like to keep stories like this, Jesus on a donkey riding into Jerusalem, we like to keep them in church, and we like to keep them in these you know, cerebral religious celebrations. And yet right here in the middle of this, Jesus is showing how human this is mm-hmm. and how this reality is walking itself right into our reality of today. And I think about a lot of our people that are listening to this have been shut in to their homes for a couple of weeks now. And and it may be very possible that not everybody's happy about being locked up with their family. <laughs> like, think about, <laughs> I mean, we all laugh about that, but you can feel very guilty about not liking your kids because you've been locked up with them for two mm-hmm. weeks mm-hmm. and wondering, is Jesus present in that reality or having a hard time with your spouse and trying to remember why you married them because now you're around them all the time. Or really dealing with fear and feeling guilty about being afraid about what your future may hold. If I'm following with where you're going, you're basically inviting us to see this passage as not just something that happened in the Bible, although it did. It's more um, speaking to the reality of uh, a living Jesus who deals with real-life situations, like taking a cult from a guy. Like, that's recorded for us, and that there's this moment of... Jesus deals in real life stuff. Is that, what you're, is that where you're going? Yeah, because it's easy to keep this separate from my reality and think I have to change my reality for Jesus to ride into my life. Uh, when in reality, Jesus is riding into where we are right now and that that's safe. Yeah. He knows that there's going to be the question, why? Why are you taking this? And he also answers the question that the Lord, he needs it. And you know, to Brant's point of whether I can fully understand or comprehend the why, which I'm going to go to my grave with many whys. The Lord is purposefully and intentionally working something, and we, where we sit in redemptive history is different than where these people sat. We can see that uh, with, much, with much clearer eyes on this side of his death and resurrection, that he's working even in the confusion of it all and the and difficulty of it all. Yeah, I think that one of the beautiful things about Easter is that Jesus is not just riding into the best of me. He's also riding into the worst of me and still keeps coming. Mm-hmm. And he's not confused about our addictions. He's not confused about our sin. He's not confused about those parts of us that no one else sees. And maybe are even harder to hide now that we're quarantined with people that we love. He's not hidden from those things, and yet he still rides right in. So when we see this story, talk to me guys about the crowd. What are they doing and what is the significance of what they're doing? I mean, these are people who have lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire. What they expected was that God was going to somehow deliver them from that. And so when Jesus is riding into the city, they're praising him as a coming king, as someone who they believe is going to deliver them. Yeah. And why did they want a new king? Hmm. What was that oppression looking like? I mean, it looked like for them, violation of their conscience. 
right? Their kind of whole religious system and way of operating as a people felt like it was being threatened and destroyed and manipulated. It looked like high taxes that they didn't want to pay. It looked like, yeah, foreign domination. Yeah, they had a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of ability to navigate the way that they wanted to underneath Roman rule, but they didn't have uh, kind of the freedom and authority uh, that they desired. Um, it was it was kind of a negotiated relationship in that way. So when they're uh, in loud voices, you know, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, it was common practice for the Israelites to chant that. It's, a, it's from Psalms. I think uh, 113 to 118 to chant that at the end of the Passover feast, uh, which if they're connecting the liberation from Egypt and the oppression from Egypt in the Old Testament with Jesus right now, and they're saying, as we were set free under Moses <laughs> from Egypt's rule, Jesus is going to be the one who's going to set us free from Rome's rule. I know that in Matthew 21, they're also shouting Hosanna, which I'd love for one of you guys to talk about the significance of that passage or that word. Well, Hosanna is a word that literally means it's a crying out for the Lord to come and save us. It's a cry of need for rescue. It's a cry of need for salvation. And so when even the phrase Hosanna in the highest, it, that we can you know sometimes think about that like that's in the highest heavens, which... I guess there's some of that, but it's more to the highest degree we are crying out, Hosanna, Lord, come save us. Mm -hmm. And I think that for them to be crying that out at this point speaks to what Brant was talking about and what Dave was talking about is their current state. was there, there were some allowable freedoms for them to be Jewish people, but they had way different ideas of what it was supposed to mean for them to be God's people in their homeland. And so come and save us, King, because we agree, right, that this is what you coming and saving us to the highest degree would mean, which is freeing us from this oppression that doesn't allow us to be in our promised land, to be in our homeland, and to move and groove religiously and socially the way that we want to. And so that Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, it's a crying out for saving Buried in it, though, and we'll see this as we walk through it, is an expectation or an idea of what that salvation would look like. And they're not the only ones that are there. We also see in our story here, Jesus, his disciples, the crowd, but also these guys named the Pharisees. Who are these cats? So the Pharisees are religious leaders of the day, and they, in a lot of ways, had kind of made compromises with the Roman Empire, and they were wielding power that was both political and religious over the people. And as Jesus has been journeying toward Jerusalem, he's been escalating his conflict with the Pharisees. So he's been calling out all the ways that they kind of are oppressing the people. And they, you see in this passage, they have to respect Jesus as a teacher. And yet at the same time, they're threatened by him. And so they're trying to shut, kind of shut Jesus and this Jesus movement down. Well, let's get into that because there's a verse in this passage that kind of ties the whole passage together with how these crowds are acting. And it's verse 42. When do you guys want to read that? Uh, verse 41 says, As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So obviously we prepared some for this time together with you guys, and we are all gripped by what Dave was talking about, about this passage and I'd love for Dave to take a few moments and talk to us about what Jesus is saying. Well, yeah, I mean, I think both what we've said about for the crowd as well as for the Pharisees, 
everybody has an idea and a concept in this moment of what would bring them peace and have a way that they want that peace to be brought about. So whether it's the crowd who wants basically a revolt and to be set free completely from the rule of Rome, uh, to have their land back, like you said, Elliot, and to be able to worship and move and groove in the ways that uh, they feel called to, or the Pharisees who had found themselves in this kind of quasi-negotiated power position Mm -hmm. where they had a in some ways, a different form of peace than the rest of everybody else, uh, and who felt very threatened by Jesus, and were telling Jesus, tell everybody to be quiet. You know, it's, it's like when we studied in the storm passage the other day, they're, they're trying to speak to the storm of their power being mm. threatened, and they're trying to calm the storm that Jesus is, and Jesus is saying, I, I am the storm that you can't calm, and I'm coming to accomplish uh, what I know is true peace that you desperately need that you wouldn't even know how to ask for. I just have to go do it for you. And this is true of Jesus. It's always true of Jesus. I'm committed to your deepest need. I'm committed to what you truly need that I know that you need. There's a peace that transcends your temporal conflicts with Rome and your little power plays amongst one another. And I think, Randy, you, you've you talked about you know the, the three types of peace and the primary peace that Jesus is writing in Jerusalem to establish is that there's a peace that needs to be established between God and man through Christ's death and through the perfect spotless Passover lamb that Jesus was. And until that's accomplished, until peace uh, is made between God and man, all the rest, um, the, the lesser pieces that we seek won't be possible. Well, and I think it's interesting too that I just to, like you invited us to at the beginning Randy, to, to go back into the story that Jesus rides on this colt to the worshipers who are claiming Hosanna in the highest, and blessed is he who come, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, then the Pharisees are muffed at that. They're, they're not enjoying that. And the first thing Jesus says that we have that Luke recorded is he starts talking about peace. And so he's operating on a different level, a different playing field. But isn't it interesting that, like Dave was just articulating, like he's coming after something that they don't even know is possible, but he's also coming after the deepest place of peace that they need. And I think what's powerful about that phrasing, if you only knew it would bring you peace, he's weeping when he says it. You guys, this is scary stuff that what you're talking about, because now you're taking us away from an Easter bunny rabbit kind of religion into the nitty-gritty reality of our lives because the crowd wanted peace by Jesus coming in and changing everything. They were suffering, and they wanted their suffering to stop, and they wanted Jesus to make their lives better. And Jesus saying, no. And then he looked at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees wanted Jesus to change nothing, that everything they had, they liked, they wanted to be quiet and not change anything, and Jesus said no. So let me give you guys some time to riff. What is wrong with me identifying with the crowd and saying, the kind of peace that I want from Jesus is I want him to come in and change everything in my life. I want him to give me the life that I want, and I want him to stop my suffering, and I want him to stop my pain. What's wrong with having a Christianity that expects Jesus to do that in my life? I mean, I think the one of the hard issues of it is that it, it locates our central problem as people as something outside of ourselves. It says that the issue that I most need resolved is all of the things outside of me. And Jesus says, well, that's not actually the root of your problem. The root of of your problem, of my problem, is me. 
I'm the consistent link in all of my dysfunctional relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say that about my life too? You are the consistent link, Brent. (laughs) No, that's beautiful. Keep going. Well, I mean, and that's true even with systems, right? In, In some ways, the crowds are calling for Jesus to burn down all of the political and economic systems that have created injustice around them. And wanting unjust systems to change isn't in and of itself a bad thing. But Jesus is saying, do you realize that the root problem of all of these unjust systems is also you? It's the human condition. It's a problem that resides in the hearts Mm. of men and women that needs to be dealt with first. When I want a Jesus that says yes to everything I want for me, then I want a butler. I don't want a Lord. So it's hard to say, but what Brant, I think you're saying is is that Jesus is he he's coming to reclaim the throne of my heart and sin always moves me and what I want to the center. And he's saying until that's resolved and until I have done what I'm gonna do on the cross, which allows me to fulfill things like Ezekiel talks about where he says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit so that you can follow me, not follow you. Until Jesus does what he's about to do, I can't pray the prayer, uh, the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done with any sort of integrity because the only prayer I'm going to be praying is my kingdom come and my will be done. And he's got to give me a new heart to pray that prayer. Yeah, and I think that, like we've all said, there's this element of Jesus going after something deeper than they even are aware of. And because he's weeping while he says it, there's so much there. But the idea would be Jesus is more committed to my ultimate peace than I am. And so what's wrong, Randy, with me wanting everything else to change in order to bring me peace, everyone else to change in order to bring me peace, Jesus loves me too much to let me believe that that would actually bring me peace. And he would say something else, like Dave and Brand have just alluded to, my own kingdom, my own view of myself, Brant, those things have to change in order for real peace to be accomplished. And so Jesus would be saying, I'm more committed to real peace than you are for you. And it just might not come the way that you you think it is. So who was it that's saying, I want it all? I, I want, want it all it and I want it now. Yeah, who's that? Oh man, who can sing it for us? I want it all. (laughs) I want it all. (laughs) I want it all. And I want it now. Guys, this is embarrassing. (laughs) My first thought was of the high school musical song. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Is that on Survivor? (laughs) Well, you know, it's the reason I bring that up is because we can all say if you get what you want, you think that's going to give you what you want. And what Jesus is saying here to the crowd and to us is that it's a fool's errand to believe that if you could just get everything you want, then you would have the peace that you want in life. But we still spend a lot of our time and our energy creating a world that gives us pretty much what we want. And so we can relate to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had created a world that they were like, we're okay. I don't think we really need you to come in and change everything. And how does how does Jesus here speak to that part of us that's like, Jesus, I think, I think I'm good. I think that there are things in my life that I just would rather you not mess with. So for the Pharisees to be saying, hey, don't mess with the system we've set up, uh, Jesus coming in along and saying, I have to, I actually have to destroy that system because there's not real peace there. The, their anger is almost the same as the people's 
we get to decide what would bring us peace. Yeah, you know, these last three weeks or so that um, we've been quarantined, it's funny that my routine was something that gave me peace. It Mm -hmm. gave me consistency. It gave me predictability. It gave me, uh, okay, I know what I'm doing, and I could really put a lot of my life on cruise control. And God just seemed to blow all that up. And it's funny because the things that I start to acquire for my own comfort and to build my own house of peace, it may not be real peace, but at least it's my peace. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't seem very interested in respecting my boundaries of what I wanted to touch and what I don't want to touch. I mean, I, I think about how the, the Pharisees in this society were the most privileged people in their society. They wielded power. They had access to resources more than most. And that's kind of the one of the illusions of privilege is that my privilege makes me think that I don't have need. And Jesus is kind enough to kind of pull back the wool and say, no, you, you actually do have need. You have great need. And we know that when we look at the world around us, that rates of addiction and, and drug abuse and all of those things are just as high in privileged communities as compared to not privileged communities. Sometimes it looks different, but the heart sickness is the same. And Jesus is kind of pulling the wool back. So um, in walks Jesus, and he is literally the king of a kingdom. And he is coming in this coronation procession, and the crowds don't know what they're shouting, uh, but they are shouting truth. Uh, He comes to save them. Talk to me, guys, about Jesus walking into not just the crowd's life, change everything, or the Pharisee's life, change nothing. Uh, he walks into our lives in that place, and the way he does that is he walks straight to the cross. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this happening at the time of Passover and the significance that that held for the people, they would have understood something with that connection, even though he had told them at this point, I'm going to, the, yeah, I'm going to die. They still didn't really comprehend what was about to play out, but, you know, Scripture has made it clear post-fall that there is no, no peace without blood. Like Leviticus 17 talks about that, that uh, I've got to give, you know, the life of, of a creature is in its blood, and I've given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. The blood makes the atonement for one's life. So Jesus is, is riding into Jerusalem. He's weeping over uh, Jerusalem. He's weeping over the state of the heart of everyone, knowing that the only thing that's going to create real peace uh, between God and man, and then make it possible for there to be peace between man and man, is my blood is going to have to be shed for you. There's no other way for that to be possible. Yeah, Dave, I think that Romans 5.1 says that, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's, that's foundational to the gospel that we preach, is the simplest definition of peace is there's no war. <laughs> And what that means is not only are you not at enmity with God anymore, he, he has turned an enemy into a son or a daughter. There is no war anymore. He has settled the score. It also means not just are you at peace with God, he's at peace with you, hmm. which means he's not worried about who you are. He's not anxious about how your life might go. He's not even 
wondering, are you going to find favor with him? He's already made that happen through what you're talking about in Leviticus, the blood of, a, of an atoning sacrifice. So peace with God becomes this state in which I now live out of that place. And peace with God, I have peace with him and he has peace with me. If that has been settled, some of, and maybe radically all of, the hastiness, the... Um, the squirming around, the, the the laboring for something that's already been settled. Um, it's like, Randy, you've talked about for years that the gospel invites me to take hold of what has already taken hold of me. Jesus has already accomplished my peace. If that's true or since that's true, I can set down all the attempts to try to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he's already settled that. And so now what does that look like as I walk when, and as Jesus would say, here's something that would bring you peace, and I'm on my way to do it. That's what this triumphal entry is for, and I've accomplished that. So that's really beautiful, Elliot. I, I want to ask you to just talk about one other thing, because is there anything that I can do in my life to destroy that peace between me and God? What was settled on the cross, what can I undo that with? The answer is no. So if there is nothing I can do that's going to undo what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross, then why do often I feel like I've lost my peace with God. Well, seriously, when you think about emotionally, Mm -hmm. sometimes my heart emotionally doesn't connect with my mind intellectually, and I feel like that when I sin or when I do things that I feel ashamed of, that I'm convinced that now in some way I've lost my peace with God. Yeah, if my peace with God uh, has been once and for all settled, then it should also be assumed that's probably the place that my enemy and my flesh are going to wage war against the most, is to get me to not believe or at least live like that's not true. And, you know, Randy, you alluded to it a few weeks ago. Revelation 12 says that our enemy accuses God's children day and night. He's a relentless accuser. And then what First John tells us is that though our hearts condemn us, like our own hearts participate in screaming at us that we don't have peace with God. And so there is certainly a reality to feeling like those things aren't true because of the assault of the enemy, because of course my enemy, of course my flesh would not want me to believe what is most true about me, that that is what is constantly being assaulted. But there's this biblical invitation. This is David and all the Psalms. I'm going to actually choose to believe something outside of how I feel about that thing right now. And that's, in Dave Burden terms, that's the war of peace, that peace has been settled. That doesn't mean I always feel at peace, but that doesn't mean that it's any less real or true. It's why it's so critical right now, because oftentimes um, when we come to church and we hear teaching and we worship and we uh, practice prayer together and celebrate the sacraments and partake of the grace God gives us through communion, it's not that it's often teaching us new things, it's reminding us of who we are. And it's important that we be reminded of who we are and what we have in Christ because what we most deeply believe emotionally often affects the way we live our lives. And one of the pieces that a part of this peace idea is that now we become agents of peace. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I live in the reality that I have peace with God, that I don't know, uh, this may be a stretch, but that instead of looking over me and weeping, now he looks over me and rejoices. Mm. That he's singing a song of rejoicing because my position as a son is is secure. But I, I live in a world that challenges that all the time, and I live in a world that doesn't operate 
on the principles of the gospel. And so every single day, I mean, Randy, you alluded to this with your comments about your routine. I discovered that I have like a very diversified functional peace portfolio <laughs> where <laughs> my peace is kind of functionally operating in a lot of different areas, not ultimately in my identity as a son of the king. And so when I lose uh, my control or I lose my routine or, or you know, daily comforts or my relationships looking a certain way, um, a lot of that shuffling about um, that we're all experiencing right now is uh, oftentimes exposing, man, I, I've got a lot of peace, functional peace banked uh, in that area. And so I think the invitation always is, and we preach this all the time in Midtown, is to actually come back to the gospel that Elliot just talked about, which is doing things like in Colossians 3, where it says, let the peace of Christ rule or umpire your heart. It's almost like what we talked about last week, the disciples and the the 5,000, like, let Jesus be the authority of your peace. Settle the authority battle. And, you know, every single day, interacting with people and doing life is trying to kind of wrestle us away, whether it's the enemy or our flesh, (laughs) Restless away from who's got the authority and who's going to give me peace. Like in Philippians 4, where it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's like being in a courtroom where the judge, because Jesus is the judge, and the verdict's in, right? That's what Elliot just said. The verdict's in. Forgiven. Son. Righteousness. Daughter. <laughs> whole. And it's challenging, but how I step into the peace that is available to me, the peace that I can have in the middle of the chaos, letting the peace of Christ umpire my heart. Philippians 4 says, here's how you do it. Here's how you let the peace of Christ guard your heart. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned to receive from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. All I have to do is step back into the stream. It's not like I have to create it. Uh, He's created it. Um, I just need to swim in it. And when we do swim in that, something profoundly happens as it flows out of our life because the Jesus that went to the cross is also calling us to follow in there. Yeah, Jesus tells us that, that the fact that he has made peace between us and God and that now I can have peace in myself, it changes the way that I interact with the world. And one of the things he tells us is that now our identity is as men and women who bring peace out into the world, that Mm. we have now become peacemakers, that our call, maybe even more than the things we traditionally think of as our call, like our jobs and our families and all of those places, we are called to be people who bring peace with us. It's our identity now. Mm. And Jesus tells us about how we're to do that, that we're to do that as people who have been made whole and have peace that that resides inside of us. I think about that in terms of even on a micro level, what's happening in my house right now, that God has called me to be an agent of peace in my home as we are all locked in my home together, (laughs) (laughs) which means my parenting is to be from a place of peace. That if I look at my two-year-old and I say to her, I'm not okay, I need you to make me okay, I'm not going to be able to parent her in a way that creates peace for her. (laughs) that Jesus is daring me, would I, would I dare to parent my daughter from a place of having peace in and of myself? And we could ripple that out into larger and larger spheres, that that's true with me and my family of origin, that I get to walk into my family now and not play the role that I've always played for my entire life, 
but now I get to walk in as a person who brings peace with me. So I, I have the freedom now to set appropriate boundaries. I have the the freedom now to love individual people in my family, not the way that my system has taught me to love them, but in the way Jesus has taught me to love them. And it even ripples out beyond that into our world big picture, mm. right? In the way that I engage with the social structures around me, that I get to do that not as a person who is looking for my crusade for justice to make me whole, but I get to go into my world as a person who's been made whole and can think critically and creatively about how I engage with those structures because now I have everything that I need because of what Jesus has done for me. So as we bring our time to an end here, we uh, just really encourage you, our community that we miss so deeply, that this Passion Week, even though we're not celebrating it together, is something you can celebrate in your own home where you pause and allow the sobriety that comes from your need for Jesus to come into your heart and your home uh, not just to uh, remind you of the peace that you have with God through Christ's work on the cross, but also to acquisition the peace that he has for you in your own heart and give you courage now to uh, be agents of peace in the world that you're living in. So I'm going to ask Elliot to end our time together just by praying for our community and for us and for our city. Jesus, hearing the story retold of uh, your triumphal ride into Jerusalem strikes us all again at the apparent irony that you would call that triumphant since you were headed to die. But what you triumphed over was not just our authority of what we thought would bring us peace. You triumphed over the very thing that truly threatens our peace, and you, you set your face towards Jerusalem to go and do it, weeping for those of us that had no idea what would bring us peace. So uh, triumphant Jesus, glory to you, to the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we, we cry out with these people uh, as sanely as we know how. Um, Hosanna in the highest. We need your rescue. Um, not only did we need it to bring us peace with God and to settle the score, we, we need it for our own inner peace to reign and to rule. Jesus, would you be the authority on our peace? And we also need it that because both those things are secure, we can now move as agents and ambassadors of peace in our own homes and in our city. Um, and this city needs peace desperately right now. This city needs uh, an army of folks who are not deciding what would bring them peace and then willing to fight for it. This city is desperate for people who are at peace and have inner peace truly on, on the truest terms uh, that we might be a light in the darkness to show uh, where real peace is found. Um, so guide us, Father. Guide us, triumphant Jesus. Guide us, uh, Holy Spirit, as we receive and rest in and live out of, uh, of your peace. In your name, amen. Amen. Hey, folks, uh, just want to remind you that even though we're not meeting together as a congregation, our small groups are still meeting. In fact, uh, they're meeting on Zoom platforms uh, as well as other social medias. And I want to encourage you that if you're not in a small group, this is a great time for you to join a small group and jump into um, getting to know some of our folks and being encouraged and maturing in your own faith. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that. Go online at midtownfellowship.org. And there's lots of opportunities for you to join a small group.
that you could.